0: series of studies published by amg i hope that you'll enjoy listening to dr wayne barber well would you
1: turn this morning to first corinthians chapter two? First corinthians chapter two we're going to pick up in a little bit in verse three today and we're talking about this is a part two of a message on the sin of demanding your own rights now chapter five we saw two of the consequences of fleshly living One was immorality, and one was the indifference of the church. They wouldn't deal with the immorality. That was just as bad. That's two of the consequences. You come to chapter six, and you find the sin of demanding your own rights. You know, isn't it interesting? I guess all of us have done it from one time or another. We say we want what God wants. I've said it. You've said it. But you know, when we're not willing to do what He says, and when we're not willing to trust Him in what we do not understand, look out. On the flip side of that are some devastating results. You see, we only have two choices. Jesus said in Matthew six, he says, if any man talks about two masters, he said he cannot serve two masters. He says, you'll love one, he'll hate the other. You say, I, don't, I wouldn't hate the Lord. Hate is a choice, it's not a feeling. And when I choose to serve my flesh, I have communicated to God and to the world that I hate him. I do not want his way, I do not want his word, I do not want him working in my life. And so that's the only two choices we have. And the Corinthian church made the wrong choice. They started choosing the flesh rather than choosing to obey and yield to the spirit of God. And they had started attaching themselves to anything of the flesh, especially to men. And of course their mind was thinking fleshly all the time. And this is gonna communicate in the way that they would live. And you have to be very careful what you attach yourself to or allow yourself to be attached to. Heard the funny story the other day that brought this out in a beautiful way. There was these two hunters that are out hunting and they found a hole. I mean, the biggest hole they've ever seen in their life. One of them said, man, what a hole. I mean, look at this hole. And it didn't have any bottom. It looked like it didn't have a bottom to it. And so they, they got a rock and he dropped it over in the hole and it didn't hit anything. They didn't hear a thing, not a thing. They got a bigger rock and they went over and dropped it into it. Nothing, nothing. I mean, just went and went and went, just went out of sight, never heard a thing. They said, this is the biggest hole we've ever seen in our life. So they went over and they, they looked around they found a railroad cross tie and it took two of them to carry it. They drug that thing over <laughs> and they dropped that cross tie into that hole. And when they did, it went out of sight. Suddenly they witnessed something they'd never seen before. Out of, out of nowhere came a goat and that goat ran right between them hard as it could run and just dove right in that hole. And they said, did you see that? There was a goat. He just ran, He jumped right in that hole. About that time, a farmer drove up in his truck. They said, "This, this is the most unique thing we've ever seen." He said, Do you ever, "Have you ever seen this hole before?" He said, "No, I don't think so." He said, "Well, not only does it not have a bottom," he said, "a goat just ran, just flew by us and, and jumped right in that hole." He said, "Could that be your goat?" The farmer said, "Oh no, no, no! I had my goat tied to a cross tie." <clears throat> You have to be real careful what you attach yourself to or allow yourself to be attached to. <laughs> the Corinthian church was attached to the flesh and it was doing the same thing. It was dragging them right into the hole of sin. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter one, verse one. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Listen to the words. Nor stand in the path of sinner. The word path means the way of sinner, the characteristic of sinner. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers, and then it says this, but his delight is in the promises of God. And he brought the little book called The Promises of God and daily he goes around and rehearses those promises. Is that what it's saying? No, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. Do you realize what it's saying here? The man, and by the way, the word blessed in the Psalms, Psalm chapter one, when he's brought over to the Septuagint means absolutely, totally, completely, spiritually satisfied. Who is this man? This is the man who doesn't go around claiming the promises. Oh, certainly that's a part of his life, but he seeks daily the law of God in his life. He only wants what God desires in his heart. And as a result of this, this man is a blessed man. We must realize, folks, that the flesh is addicted to sin. He said, where are you going with all this wine? Oh, well, I'm headed somewhere, with it? Especially, especially when it comes to personal loss or gain when you deal with the material world. I want you to know, friend, the flesh immediately will take over. If you and I have been offended, sinned against, deeply hurt by church members, and it involves money, personal possessions, anything that we can see, touch or feel, the flesh will go right into gear and will deceive us into thinking we can demand our own rights. In our last message concerning this subject, we saw that the believer in chapter one and verse two is called out of this world. The word ecclesia for the church means called out ones. We also saw in verse two, the same thing that we've seen so many times, the grid that we view the whole book of 1 Corinthians through that we're called saints. And a saint is one who is sanctified. Now I want you to hang on to this because the word saint comes back into play in chapter six. It's it's imperative we understand this. A saint means somebody has been washed, taken out of the mire of sin. He's been placed over here and he has but one purpose for all of eternity and that is to glorify God and to trust him explicitly in his life and to be a vessel through which God can work. We went over to Ephesians chapter four and saw how saints who have been called set apart been, been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, how that daily we need to walk worthy uh, 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 as to our calling. In other words, if we're going to talk about loving Christ, we've got to live it out. It's got to be a balance in our life. And that will show up in the way we deal with one another. As we saw those words in, in Ephesians chapter four and verse two, how we're humble and that humility means we see our own self in light of God's presence and we realize we need to get it down as far as we can possibly get. But not only that, one of the words in there is forbearing. And I brought Chuck Weaver up here and leaned against him and tried to show you what forbearing means. Forbearing means if you have offended me, but we're one in Jesus Christ, I'm going to bear up against you and hold you up with prayer and whatever else I can do to hold you up until God can bring you back around and we can enjoy the unity that he gives. But in verse 3, we also saw in Ephesians chapter 4, that the Christian that loves God, that has an eternal purpose that is set apart unto him, lives daily to preserve the unity of the Spirit and he does it in the bonds of peace. Now folks, that sounds good in here, but it doesn't sound so hot. When somebody that you're supposed to be unified with turns around, goes the route of the flesh and offends you and it costs you money or hurts you in some way, if that ever happens to you, remember what you are, you're a saint. I'm a saint, all of us are saints. Set apart only to bring glory unto God. Now you say, now why in the world is this so important? Because in the Corinthian church, there's been an individual who's been offended by another individual. Brother Spiro says he believes that it, means it has to do with money. We don't know that for a fact, but it says matters of this life and normally matters of this life fall into one of those categories. He is in no way listening to the Spirit of God. In fact, he has chosen to take this Christian brother and take him to court, a public court, a public court made up of unbelievers and sue him for everything that is worth. In verse one, it says of 1 Corinthians six, if you wanna look with me, does any one of you, and that, that little phrase means, is there a single one of you? It's not necessarily that he's saying there is, but obviously there is, or he wouldn't be saying it. When he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. In other words, if there's any single one of you that's taking somebody to court and suing him and you, you're a part of my body, he says, we've got a huge problem. And the problem is you're killing your witness. These, the pagans don't understand the Christian world. Is there any one of you doing this? And by the way, as I'm going through this, I want to tell you something, folks. When it comes to a difficult situation that many of you perhaps may find yourself... There's nothing like the war that rages in your mind when God's word is holding you to one thing and your mind is pulling you another way. There's nothing like that war. I know what I'm talking about. I've been there myself. And everything in you screams at you and says, you have a right. You have a right. You have a right. And the Holy Spirit of God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're mine, you're purchased, you're bought with a price, you're a vessel, you're sanctified, you're a saint. Now glorify me, glorify me. And the flesh says, no, no. And the spirit says, yes, yes. And it's like you're being ripped apart on the inside when you're going through these situations. You have got to understand the battle and the power of the mind of the flesh and how it'll seek to overtake you when you go through it. And you've got to understand Corinth. In Corinth, everybody sued everybody. Matter of fact, it was like a game. Corinth was not much unlike Athens. Corinth is only about 45 minutes by car now. I guess it's a little longer back then. <laughs> they didn't have cars. But listen, let me tell you what the law situation was like back in that time. Everybody was involved in some kind of arbitration. It had become a, a form of challenge to some people, even as in, under inter- entertainment. One ancient writer claimed that, in a manner of speaking, Every Athenian was a lawyer. Now the reason I'm going to Athens, we have documentation on that. We don't know exactly in Corinth if it was the same, but it probably was. When a problem arose between two parties, they could not settle between themselves. The first recourse was for each of them to go get a private arbitration, some some arbitrators that they knew to help them. Each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbitrator, and the two arbitrators along with a neutral third person would attempt to resolve the problem. If they failed, the case was turned over to a court of 40 who assigned a public arbitrator to each party. Interestingly, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his life. Isn't that interesting? Everybody had to serve as one. Now, if public arbitration failed, after the private had failed, if the public arbitration failed, The case went to a jury court composed of some several hundred to several thousand jurors. Every citizen over 30 years of age was subject to serving as a juror, either as a party to a lawsuit or as an arbitrator or as a juror. Most citizens regularly were involved in legal proceedings of one sort or another. So this is the whole, this is the whole pagan society they lived in, huh? You offended me, I'm gonna sue you and I'm gonna get everything out of you I can get out. No, you're not, I'll take you to court. And that was the mentality that they lived in during that day. And what happened to the Corinthian believers? They just took the world's way of doing it and drug it right into the church as if they could still go on living their lives like they wanted to live. They saw no difference. Now, the Romans allowed the Jews to solve their own cases. They could have their own court system. They could have their own arbitrators. But now listen, the Romans also considered the Christians as Jews. They didn't know the difference. And so the Jews had the same right. I mean, the Christians had the same right, but they chose not to take it legally. They chose to go to the public courts. And this is the problem we're dealing with in Corinth. You see, Paul tries to get them thinking straight. In verse two, as we saw the last time, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest courts? And we're going to look at this again in just a moment. In other words, if they're going to be co-regents with Christ one day, can't you solve your own problems right where you are? Remember in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ And so therefore, whatever matter comes up within the church, we have his word, we have his wisdom, which is the ability to take his truth and properly apply it. And so therefore, why do we need to go outside the church? We can arbitrate it right where we are. We can solve the problems within the church, he says. Why do you take your problems and drag it before a public court made up of unbelievers? Well, we've seen the problem. The problem is that they're suing each other. They've taken a pagan practice and brought it right into the church. And he says, you're killing your witness. You have no witness with the world now. He says, now let's come back to what the word says. So the first thing is the problem. The second thing is the misunderstanding. And I'm gonna go back and rehearse a little bit of those verses or that verse I just read a moment ago. And what we're doing, yes, we're still reviewing, but I'm really overlapping because I wanna keep bringing you into the current of this stream. If you don't do that, you lose sight of what already has been said. Go back to our last message and the fact that they did not have a spiritual perception. And this is, this is the problem. When you attach yourself to the flesh, remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 5? That a person who's not accustomed to the word of righteousness, a person, he, he, he's, he's, he can't, he's only fit for milk. He can't handle the solid food. And then that last verse, at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 5 says, but those who are the mature ones those who have trained their senses under righteousness, they have an ability to discern between that which is of the spirit and that which is of the flesh. And folks, listen, when you're not living surrendered to Christ, when you've attached yourself to the cross tie of sin (laughs) and self, and it begins to drag you down, the first thing that goes is your perception, your discernment your ability to wade through a problem and find God's mind and latch on to it. And that's what's happening here. He says in verse two, or do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The word for know there is the word we wanna focus on. The word know is e-though, Eido e-though comes from the word horao, H-O-R-A-O. And that word means to divinely see something, yes, but to see it with an understanding that is incredible. You're able to step back and look at the whole picture. You're not just seeing the event. You're seeing things in light of eternity. And God's giving you an ability to perceive it. That's the word. Don't you have this ability? Do you not realize what you're doing? And obviously they didn't. Why wouldn't they? Because they had chosen not to grow up in the word of God. They'd chosen to walk right away from what God had said. They'd chosen to remain immature. And they'd lost their ability of discernment. They did not have that Perception that God wanted them to have. Then he goes on, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, when Christ returned, believers are going to be co regents with Christ. We're going to rule and reign with him. He rules and reigns in our hearts now. When he comes back one day, we'll rule and reign with him. Daniel 7, verse 22. Matter of fact, all the saints of the ages, whether it be the specific rulership to each one given, until the ancient of days came, it says in Daniel seven twenty-two, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The saints are going to rule with Christ one day. Then it says in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight about the about the uh, apostles, and how they'll rule over the twelve tribes of Israel in, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. And Jesus said to them, "Truly I say to you that you have you who have followed me." in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you also shall sit upon 12 thrones during the 12 tribes judging the 12 tribes of Israel but we know that every believer will also participate in this we've got the apostles we've got the old testament saints in revelation 22:6 and he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him i will give authority over the nations and in revelation 22:7 and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father. Revelation 3, 21. He who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now the apostle Paul shifts gears on them and jumps them into the future. And he says, look, look, look what you're doing. Don't you have the ability to back off of this thing and see the whole picture? If you're a believer right here, I know you got a problem with another believer, but can't you back off and realize you're going to rule with Christ one day when he comes back to this earth? Don't you have that perception to understand this? And what he's saying is, if you, can, if you can judge with him one day, why can't you settle your own differences within the body of Christ? What's wrong with you? It's what he says. He says, and if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Now, let's, let's settle down here a little bit. When I did this last time, it kind of ran through this. Are you not competent to compose the smallest law, law courts? Now, is he talking about the church as individuals? I think so to some degree, but, but I think more to the individual. Is he talking about a group of men that can arbitrate a Christian matter, a, a matter when two Christians have a problem between one another? Yes, but I think it goes a step further than that. He's saying you as an individual. Hey, you, 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 hey. You, 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 yeah, yeah, you, you. I got you, I got you. Do you understand you? Yeah, that's right, you, come on, pay attention. You, you're gonna rule with Christ one day? You're gonna rule with me one day? That's what Christ is saying. Now, do you understand? No, no, everybody, do you understand that you yourself can constitute the smallest law court? In other words, you yourself can solve this whole matter by being willing to die to your flesh and letting me be the ruler of this situation. You can solve it right there. Do you realize in a lawsuit or anything else, it takes two? It takes two. In a fight, it takes two. And the apostle Paul, I think, takes it right back to the individual. He's saying this whole thing could be solved if you just attach yourself to Christ. If you would just come to me and lay it down at my feet and let me pick it up if I want to pick it up. You let me do what I want to do. You can become the smallest of law courts. You know, you say, Wayne, you don't understand what I'm going through. I know I don't, but you don't understand what I've been through either. Years ago, my mom worked for a hotel motel chain in Roanoke, Virginia. My mother was very dear to me. When you see my personality, you see my mother. You see my daughter, Stephanie. You see me, my mother. You see my mother's mother, you got them all. This just follows right down through there with the personality that we have. I love my mother, my mother loved the world. She loved life, she loved Jesus. She gave me a heritage like nobody could have ever given me. My mom, when my dad died and I was 23 years old, grieved and grieve, but she, you know what she did? At her age, she got her driver's license. She'd never driven before. <laughs> and we got her car, a little Mustang, 1967 Mustang. Never will forget that little thing. I'd wear it as a shoe. I'd have to have two of them to get in the thing. She got her a job. And she didn't have to, but she did. My dad didn't leave her very much, but at least the house was paid for and and she got her job. She's working as a head housekeeper for this hotel motel chain. You'd know which one it was if I told you. But you know, sometimes when you get a nationally known company, there there are several companies involved in that. It may have the name, but it'd be a different group of people over here that represent that name as it would be someplace else. Well, she was the head housekeeper. She. My mom always believed the old school. You're gonna get paid for eight hours, you ought to work eight hours. So she wouldn't let the maids that worked under her watch the soap operas while they were cleaning the rooms. Because she noticed how much time it took. They, somehow it just took as long as the soap opera was on for them to clean that room, it was amazing. And so she turned it off so they could move a little quicker. Mom would do a white glove inspection after it was all over. She'd go by. Can you believe it? Wouldn't you like to stay in one motel where somebody had that kind of commitment? But she'd, make them, she'd run her hand down behind the beds and behind the, anything else that was there trying to see if there's any dust or anything else in the room. If there was, they came back and redid that room. Well, needless to say, she was well-liked by the management, but she was hated by the people that worked with her because they don't want to work. You see, this is America. You don't have to work. Welfare will take care of you, you see. And so nobody wants to work. Well, as the situation resulted, a group of the maids that were there got together and said, we're gonna have a union, a union. I don't know what you think about unions. I know what I think of them because of this experience, but I don't really, it's not right, wrong, or indifferent, whatever you think this morning. And so they went to the boss man and said, we're gonna get us a union. He says, the man, I don't think we wanna do that. So he called the head boys that owned the motel chain up in Maryland. And they flew down and they met with these maids and they said, listen, We want to barter with you a little bit because we don't want you to have a union, but we think we can work with you for some some workable situations here. What do you want? Number one on the list, get rid of Mrs. Barber. Well, she had uh, leukemia. It was in a remission stage, but leukemia can come back on you over and over again. She finally died of it. And and since she was leukemia, she was expendable anyway. She was uh, about 68 years old at that time. She lived for two more years. And so they... uh, they said, we can get rid of Ms. Barber. The guy who ran the motel chain was not a believer. Mom had witnessed to him for nine years. Precious man to my mother. And she loved him like a son. She said he reminded her of me uh, for whatever reason. Must have been nutty or something. And he didn't have a backbone, an alcoholic. He didn't have a backbone and uh, he, 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 he bowed down to it. Well, he had to tell my mother. My mom came to work every day. She'd be singing, sharing. Everybody, everybody that really knew or loved her and she walked in one day, just this big old smile on her face, which you never saw without a smile on her face. And when she walked in in that foyer, he walked over and said, Mrs. Barber, I have one, he didn't call her Myrtle, that was her name. Some people call her Mutt. <laughs> That's why they call me Jeff. No, but he said, "Miss Barber. And she said, yes. And he said, it's a cold, cruel world that we live in, but you're fired Mom had no understanding of anything. Didn't have a two-week severance, didn't have anything. That's the way it was done. They'd already packed her stuff up and put it in boxes and put it in her car. And mom couldn't even go back to the little room that she had had for nine years where she worked and had all of her things. They'd already taken it out. She got in the car, devastated. She'd always prided herself in, in doing things the right way. By the time she got home, she was so emotionally distraught, she just wept and wept and wept and wept. She didn't call me, she didn't call my sister. Uh, she didn't call anybody. And for two weeks, she didn't eat, just drank a little bit. And uh, her body got so weakened, she went out of remission and the leukemia set back in on her. Uh, actually, the way it comes back, it's, it's like the leukemia is always there. But what triggers it, she got pneumonia. Pneumonia is one of the worst enemies you can have if you have leukemia. For the next two years, my mom was in a hospital 19 out of 24 months. I was called home at least... 15, 16 times, thinking she wouldn't make it through the night and somehow miraculously she'd rally and she'd come back and she'd make it. I remember one day I was in her room and she was so weak she couldn't hold a phone and she couldn't even pick up a grape or a little hand. She'd gotten so thin. I hadn't talked about this long time. And uh, I was in her room, phone rang. It was a lawyer from New York and I had to hold the phone for her so I could listen in on what was going on. And as I was listening, The lawyer said, Mrs. Barber, we have discovered what's happened to you, the unethical thing that happened to you, and we want to sue these people, and we're going to set your family up financially for the rest of their lives, and I'm talking about millions of dollars. We've got the goods. We're ready to move. All we need on this, with tape is running, all you have to do is give us your okay and tell us your story. We'll take it from there. We know you're sick. We know you're in the hospital. We've got the lawyers that can handle it. Here I am, the minister's son. I'm going to tell you something, folks. The flesh is right there. And I was thinking to myself, burn them. <laughs> burn them. Do it. And I heard my mom say this to on, on the phone. She said, you know, I'm sorry, but you've got the wrong story. They said, what do you mean? Oh, I'm sure you've got the details of what took place. But she said, you don't have all the picture here. You don't know me. And she said, I'm a believer. And I love Jesus. And she said, I've witnessed to these people for nine years. And I wouldn't do anything right now like this. That would in any way mar my witness to these people. Now, we're not talking about Christian to Christian folks. We're talking about Christian to lost here. Which is Paul's point here is Christian to Christian. Christian. And I was thinking to myself, dear God, they've got her on this medicine. She's out of her mind. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm serious. This is what was my logic. That was made when my mind worked. That's what happens when you lose your perception, folks. You can't think straight anymore. Only the Bible makes you think straight. You tell that to the world today, they'd laugh in your face and probably spit on you before you walked away and still go to church next Sunday and claim to be a Christian. I'm telling you, it's a mental war here. This scripture is never going to get across until you understand who we are and whose we are. Well, I walked out of the room. I'm serious. I thought, man, I got to get that phone number and call these people and tell her she's not in her right mind. I'm executive of the state, and I think I can get this thing moved. Well, thank God that didn't happen. I preached her funeral. And when I preached her funeral, all of those people came. It's funny. God already put the message on my heart. I didn't think any of those people would come that had treated her like that. Every one of them came. And I got to preach on what do you have when you have Jesus? And I was able to stand in a pulpit in in a place and share her testimony of her life that don't ever look at my mom and praise my mama, but I want to point you to the one who you can praise because he affected her life and caused her to live that way. As a result of that, I got to share the gospel with every one of those people that treated her that way. And you know, for years, I still didn't understand that situation until I started really getting into scripture more deeply. And now I realize the heritage that I had, and I think I understand the heartbeat of what Paul's trying to say. And what he's trying to say is, yeah, you can prove you're right. Yeah, you live in America. We've got rights. And the law says you have rights. And you can get good justice. And you can have good decisions rendered and all the other stuff. But the bottom line is, can't you back up far enough and see the whole picture? You're going to rule with Christ one day. Do you not know where you're headed? Do you realize that you're not tied to this material world? And when you go and fight over material things, do you realize how unimportant that is in the scheme of eternal things? That's what he's saying. And he's trying to tell them each one of you individually could become the smallest law court. You can solve this whole matter. Just get right before God and trust him with it. You say, well, what if the whole thing falls apart? Hey, just trust him with it. But you see, we don't live that way, folks. We don't live that way. And I had a man tell me several years ago. He said, Wayne, people can't live that way. No, we can't live that way unless we're enabled by the grace of God and the spirit of God and let his word do its work in our heart. That's the only way we can live that way. It makes me wonder sometimes how much of the Word of God ever really gets outside these doors. How far does it really go if we're not going to live it? You see, this is the problem. And it's not easy for me to preach this because, hey, tomorrow I may be in another situation like that. The mind, it wars against you because we live in a society that says it's okay. That's the way it was in Corinth. That's the way it was in Athens. That's the way it is in Chattanooga. And I'll tell you what, folks, what you do, the testimony of Jesus Christ living in your life, and of you trusting God and God alone, is continually watered down by the decisions we make outside of the context of His will. Well, he goes on, he carries that thought, and that's why I wanted to start with that misunderstanding because he goes in verse three, and he carries it another step. He says, do you not know that we, now he puts us, we together, shall judge angels? Do you not know that? That's a difficult scripture. How'd you like to have to figure that one out? Are we talking about fallen angels? Are we talking about holy angels? What are we talking about here? Do you realize how few verses there are that gives us any kind of background as to what he's talking about here? Obviously to me, it would be fallen angels, but you can't be too adamant with that. In Jude chapter one in verse six, it says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds until under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, he also says in one of Peter's epistles, the same type of thing. So we know they're gonna be judged. So in that sense, if Jesus is gonna rule over them, we're gonna rule over them because we're gonna rule with him. So be the fallen angels. The word judge, however, could be translated rule or govern. And so therefore, if the holy angels are gonna be governed over, they have no sin with which to judge. But if they're gonna be governed, perhaps we'll even govern them. I don't know. We just don't know enough. But we do know one thing for sure. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 20 through 23, we know that Jesus is above all the angels. And it says in Ephesians 1, 20, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all uh, rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we know that he is over the angels. Well, we're with him, we're in him, we'll reign with him. So evidently, if he's gonna rule over them, we're gonna rule over them because we're gonna be with him. So that's all I I can do on that. We can't push that thing too far. But the point comes back. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the matters of life. Matters of life, the situations that come up in life. He says, don't you realize you have the spirit living in you? Don't you realize the word of God is in you? And don't you realize you can judge the matters of life better than any court in the land. If you'll judge him in your heart before God, if you'll judge him in your heart in his word, you can make the decision yourself because you know the will of God and the spirit lives in you to enable you to do that. Corinth was so far from the way God wanted them to think. That hole was a big one, was And that cross tie they were tied to had sucked them right down in it. And Paul is trying to bring them back to sanity. In an insane world, he's trying to show them how to live with sanity. Well, the, the next thing I want to share, and the only other thing I'll be able to share this morning, is the shame of their behavior. The shame. Look at verse 4. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life... Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, I want to tell you something just straight out. If you do any serious Bible study, you're going to discover that that's a translator's verse there. Yes, but this verse is far more difficult than what it appears. Very difficult verse. Matter of fact, in studying it through the other different texts that are brought out, you find a different text just about in every one of them. Why? Because it's a very difficult verse to translate. I like Brother Spiro's translation better. Here's, Here's what he says. If then... You have standards pertaining to this life. And we do, it's the word of God. Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. In other words, let the people within the church do the judging. You have the standards. You don't have to go outside those standards. You can can become that judge as, as we've already talked about. Now the word, that which determines what's right and wrong is a Greek word translated standards here. It's the word criterion. Guess what word we get in English? <laughs> criterion, same, same exact word. It can mean three things, the means of judging, the place of judgment, or the judgment itself. Here it means is the means of judgment. Paul simply says that if you have proper standards to judge the material things of the world, even the least member among you would qualify as long as these standards will continue to apply. You, don't, you can have a little babe in Christ that can make this judgment if he knows the word of God. As long as he has the standard of truth, which is God's word for judging any matter in your walk in your life, then he can make that judgment. He says, if then you have standards pertaining to this life. Now, the word for life is the word vios. <laughs> and I now know how to say it. <laughs> but it said, me and some of them were over there. And I said, bios, and everybody laughed at me in grace. <laughs> it's vios. It kind of sounds more culture, doesn't it? You didn't know how's that called. Vios. That's the word. There's two words for life, zoe and bios. Zoe is the essence of life. Bios, which is used here, are the, is a tangible part of life, material life that we live in, matters of this life, things that affect you every day, in your job, wherever you are. Those kinds of things are brought in to play. Now, it's the material things that do most of the dividing among God's people, especially in the church, especially in the church. Now, have you ever been to a, well, you haven't. I was laughing with somebody the other day. I'm pre-70th week in my view of eschatology. And I was in a meeting in Richardson, Texas, and these ladies came, and they were post-trip. that's the yo-yo. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) He's going to come at the end of the seventh week. We're going to go, whoop, whoop, turn right back down with him. I call it the yo-yo view. And uh, they were yo-yos. And they came to me and said, we're we're post-trip. And I said, is that right? And they said, yeah. Well, they were adamant about it. Well, we had a lot of fun with it. I just played with him for a while. I'm not going to fight anybody over his guitar. And then finally, I came to him one day, uh, Bubba Beasley, you know, Manly Beasley's son. Bubba and I figured out, let's, let's change our view. Let's be post-trio. Because most preachers have already been through the tribulation. It's time for the congregation to go through it. So we're going to let them go through it. Bubba and I are going to play golf until the end of that thing. Then whoop, whoop, we're going to right back down. See? Well, I kind of solved the situation. They got to laughing over that and repentant of trying to cram that view down our throat. Well, I'll tell you something, folks. You don't know what it's like sometimes on the other side. Dealing with funerals, for instance, in churches. Well, I'll tell you something. You don't think you don't tied to material things. <laughs> you let somebody die in your family that you thought, you thought, was going to give you the greater part of their inheritance. Christians all love Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Onward, Christian. Sing the hymns, verse by verse. And I've watched them in a room in a funeral home literally get in each other's face and threaten each other over money they thought they were gonna get when a loved one died. And it's my only experience has been with the churches, folks. I haven't been out in the pagan world doing those kind of things. I've done a lot of pagan funerals, but I hadn't. I'm talking about Christians, deacons, church leaders, Sunday school teachers, You letting them be threatened with something that's of the least in the kingdom, which is material things. And you're going to watch them rise up like you've never seen anything before if they have tied themselves to the cross tie of the flesh. They're already in that hole and they cannot see for looking. They cannot see it. They want what's theirs and they're going to get it. Material things of life. That's why the word vios is used here. Because Vios covers that. Not the the important things of life. No, no. This is the least important thing in the kingdom of God or is anything that's material. And yet what do we we spend most of our time fighting over? Paul is saying, what a shame. What a shame that that you would take one another court over that which is least. That which is least. Over that which you have an ability to discern and make judgments right from the word of God. He says, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, careful. Least esteemed doesn't mean least esteemed by the people of the the body of Christ. No, 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 no. You're in Corinth, remember? This is Corinthians. And in Corinth, these people that had gotten saved had come out from the world of the the the, the movers and the shakers. And now, when the world looks at them, they're the least esteemed. And he's not referring to a little group in the church. He's referring to the believers in the church because when you go out to the world and ask them about believers, they're the least esteemed. And he's saying, let the church solve their own problems. Individually is the best way. We can become the smallest court of law by making that decision and going to the cross. And people say, that's stupid. And God says, thank you, thank you. Now, let me show you what I can do on the other side of that. Did you never put into the equation? because you always tried to figure out what they're gonna do. Don't do that. Let me do that. You just trust me in this matter. And When that happens, then God is able to make that judgment in that person's life. You see, you can't take that out of the equation. What could God do? He spoke and the world came into existence and nobody said anything because there wasn't anybody to say anything. <laughs> but he said, that's good. Now, if God can do that, If God can take a body that's been cremated and speak it back into existence and give it a resurrected body. If he can raise his own self from the dead, if you'll study the Greek in that part, he not only dismissed his own human spirit on the cross, he raised himself from the dead. If God can do that, what can God do in my situation? And the Christian then steps into a different perspective. Wow. And the whole eternal purpose of a Christian comes into play. What would happen to this man's life if I spent as much time with a lawyer on my knees praying for him? And if I laid this matter down, what could God do in that mix? But you see, folks, I hate to say it, but we don't live that way anymore. We just don't live that way anymore. This is this, and this is that, and this is that. And we we compartmentalize everything. But if we can trust him in this area, why can't we trust him in that area? Why can't we trust him in that area? That's got to fit into the equation. Well, Verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. The word shame there is entropy. It's the word that means, have you ever been embarrassed to the point that you wanted to go find you a place to hide? That's the word. There's several words for, for embarrassment or shame. But this word has that idea to it, to hide oneself with shame. He said, I say this to your shame. He said, you ought to be so ashamed of yourself, you just go find you a place to hide. He said, is it so that there is not among you one wise man? You know what a wise man is? He's not a person with 17 degrees hanging to his name. He's a person who seeks God and knows truth revealed by the Spirit. And wisdom is that which God gives to that man now that he knows the word to properly apply that word to any given situation." And there are many Christians that aren't wise. They can quote all the scriptures to you, but they don't have the wisdom to know how to apply those scriptures to the given situations of life. He says, is that so? Is it so that there is not one among you, one wise man, who will be able to decide between his brethren? The problem was in Corinth, they had drug a system out of the world into the church. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't see the big picture. You're losing your testimony. They're laughing at you. They're mocking you. He didn't say they wouldn't get a fair judgment. That's not even his point. That's not his point at all. God uses the law to to protect those who are good. That's not even his point. His point is, why didn't you solve it right inside the church to protect your testimony out there? Because they don't know who you are, you see. And they don't understand what you're doing. Well, I think I've got time to, to give this illustration. Do you remember about a year ago, I told you the story about how I missed a deer down in Alabama <laughs> and how I thought it was because I cleaned my rifle the night before. How many you remember that illustration? And I didn't get it quite clean enough. Well, good. I got two of us in here that, did, that didn't quite get it clean enough. Well, I got a, a, a chapter two to that story. <laughs> I got to go down Friday and do a little hunting and I missed another one. <laughs> Only this time it wasn't a doe. This time it was, it was, the, it was the Hartford. <laughs> you know, God has a sense of humor. It was the Hartford. I mean, I couldn't even count all the points. All I saw is when it walked out in the road, I thought it was a horse until it turned around, I looked at me, I'm thinking, that's a deer. And I had my scope on it and I couldn't see anything, but deer, I'm thinking, this is a big deer. The deer was standing sort of catty corner in front of me and I aimed at his right, well, I know somebody don't like, but see, he's safe, so relax. I was aiming right behind that left shoulder. And when I fired, I mean, I, <laughs> I guarantee you one thing. There is one big buck in those woods that's scared still today. Spitless. I mean, it, that thing's walking around with his eyes crossed. I mean, he's thinking, what in the world was that? <laughs> All he was doing was eating corn. And I'm, pow, and that thing's a seven millimeter magnum. And sounds like a cannon off of a boat. Well, that night I came and said, no, wait a minute. This is not right. There's, there's two now that I've missed. Now, what's wrong? I didn't clean the gun this time. My illustration won't work. Did I just miss it? Yeah, but I found out why. We took the scope out and Randy Wilson in our church, he's a real woodsman, you know, I think he's kin to some of these Andrew Jackson or something. But anyway, we got in there and we we put the the gun down and he zeroed it in for me. It was six inches off to the left and four inches high on that scope. (laughs) Well, no wonder. Well, it's fixed now, by the way. When I go the next time, you better pray because those deer are in trouble. I now know what my problem was. And six inches would have missed that deer in a minute. And I got to thinking, I said, wait a minute now. I looked at my scope, it was tight. I mean, it didn't have to, I thought when it got off, it means the scope was loose or something. It wasn't that. And I said, well, what could get this scope off? Because it looks like it's it's like it ought to be. They said, evidently, you've banged it against something. Something has hit it, jarred it. And those little delicate things in the inside of that scope have just jumped to different degrees. You didn't know that because the scope's still tight. Looks good to me. An illustration hit me. (laughs) That rifle gets used for more stuff except killing deer. (laughs) (laughs) It hit me. Something jarred the gun. And although it looked good on the outside that everything was okay, it knocked it off its course. And the only way to find out was to zero it in and have to change and click it back. And folks, when something happens in your life, somebody offends you, whatever, it's going to jar you. I won't tell you it's going to jar you. I've been there. I know. Be careful. You better make sure you come to the Word and get that course set back. Or when you pull the trigger, you're going to miss the mark. And that's what the word sin means in the New Testament. martia, to miss the mark. That's what Paul's trying to do, correct their scope, get them back in line with what he's saying.
0: For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's
1: jashow.org.